It was quite some time ago that I contacted Dr. Reed to find out if he might be willing and available to come and preach at our church, uh, because I knew uh, I wanted to plan ahead to have him here. Um, Rick has been described to me as the Prince of Preachers in Canada, and uh, he uh, had a, a significant influence on Josh and Barb's life, and now I'm getting to see the fruit of his word-centered, gospel-saturated ministry as it's bearing fruit at Heritage Seminary. I was talking to somebody just the other day, a uh, uh, a noted historian and academic who's uh, a Canadian, and I asked him, which seminary is the best seminary in Canada for pastors? And he named two, and one of them was Heritage Seminary. So uh, it's, a, it's great to have Rick at the helm there. It's great to have Rick in our pulpit. And I just want to say personally, Rick has meant something to me. As early on, I sat down with, to meet with him, and he didn't dismiss me, or he, he sat down and engaged me as a brother in Christ, and has been an encouragement to me the times we've met. So, Rick, it's so glad to have you here. Let's welcome him. Well, thank you, Pastor James, and thank you for letting uh, me be here today. I come with my wife, Linda, and it's really special for us. We've got Linda's mother and brother and sister-in-law all the way out from Linden, Washington, right below Abbotsford. And uh, they're out with us. We're taking them to the airport today, but they've been with us for a few days and get to worship with you here. So you're going to be like their, their vision of what worship ter- services are in Canada are all going to be shaped by uh, <laughs> Maple Avenue Baptist. So I appreciate you guys inviting us. And I, as Pastor James said, I have so enjoyed getting to know him uh, over the last few years. And we have known Josh and Barb for many, many years and have followed them with great interest and pray for them and for your church. I've heard about your church for many, many years, so it's a delight to be here. And uh, I do come representing, on one level, uh, the school, Heritage College and Seminary. Somebody told me Mark LeBlanc was here. Mark, are you still here? You got a hand up here? Sorry, there he is. Mark was with us for a year. And uh, I'm not going to say a lot about the school right now, other than I do have a table out there. And if you are looking as a young adult for a Bible-saturated year, even if you say, well, I'm not sure I want to go for a full degree, a Bible-saturated year, we have some excellent, excellent one-year programs that can be rolled into a full degree if you'd like. And then on the seminary level, the same thing. We're trying to train pastors for the church. That's our heartbeat. People who know the Word, who love the Word, who love the sheep, who feed the sheep, who lead on the mission, that's what we're trying to do. And uh, my wife, Linda, actually heads up a program for women. It's called the Heritage Center for Women in Ministry. They offer courses that some of you might want to take. In January, there's actually a course that she and I will team teach on women teaching women the word. So there's stuff back there, and you could chat with her if you're interested. Well, last weekend was an epic week for our little family. Uh, We had our first wedding, our first wedding, first of our three kids to get married. Our oldest boy, uh, Ryan, married Jenny Florio, a beautiful, godly Christian young lady, And it was an incredible time. So last Saturday, a week ago Saturday, we were celebrating with them. And as I've reflected now over the past week, uh, some of you already know this because you've been through this before. This was our first time through a family wedding. But it was a busy time, busy time. Uh, They got married in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So we drove down there, spent a week ago Friday setting up tables, setting up decor, making sure food was purchased so the rehearsal dinner could come off. You, some of you are smiling because you've done this. And you know, it's, we, we're exhausted at the end of the time. So it was a busy time, but I have to tell you, it was a joyful time. 
I'm not sure that I've had many happier days in my whole life than that week ago Saturday. And Linda would say the same. We are still living in the glow of the glory of that wedding. But I've had a week to think about it. And I would say to you now, after a week, it was not only a busy time, not only a joyful time. I would say, and I'm choosing this word carefully, it was a glorious time. I mean, the the fall colors and the trees around the the church were glorious. It was a beautiful, sunny day. The church itself and the decor, that was glorious. The bride, she was glorious. My wife looked glorious. Everyone was looking better than normal here, right? It's like, wow, what happened to all of us? It was glorious. But here's what I mean by that. There was a spiritual glory on that weekend that surprised me. It caught me off guard. I didn't fully expect it. I would tell you that I got a glimpse of the glory of God last weekend in a way that stunned me and in a way that strengthened my faith. Now, I'm not the first person to leave a wedding with a greater and clearer vision of the glory of God. It happened to Jesus' first followers at a wedding they followed him to. And at that wedding, they, his first followers, got a vision of the glory of Christ in a way that stunned them. And they saw a vision of the glory of Christ that strengthened their faith. So I was thinking about this Sunday here at Maple Ave and what I could be preaching about you. Wedding was on my mind, and I started thinking about this passage about a wedding and seeing the glory of Christ. And from what your pastor has told me, you are a group of people who long to see more of the glory of Christ, who long to have your faith strengthened in His Word. And so I thought, well, what could, what could I bring to these dear folks? And I decided that today I would invite you to go with me to a wedding. Not my son's wedding, that already happened a week ago. But I want to invite you to the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Because it was at that wedding when some of the followers of Jesus got a clear vision of his glory in a way that surprised them, stunned them, and strengthened their faith. And my prayer has been for you this morning, though I may not know you personally. I know the kind of people that you are. And, and my prayer has been that you would leave this day kind of having a sense that, that you got a glimpse in a greater way of the glory of Christ. We'll finish around the Lord's table, which is just a perfect ending for this. But if you'd like to have your faith strengthened and a little clear vision of the glory of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to, to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. And let's go to a wedding and see some wedding day glory. John chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning, verses 1 to 11. I want to talk to you about wedding day glory. A wedding that showcased the glory of Jesus in a way that strengthened the faith of his followers. And my prayer today is that's what will happen here. That God's spirit will take his word and work in our hearts so that we see Christ's glory and have our faith strengthened. John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 is where we'll be. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at the passage together. Father, my heart still brims with joy. It's still the glow of a week ago, but it's also the joy of being with your people in this place, singing the praises of Christ, gathering around the table of Christ, and now opening up the word about Christ. And I pray you will help me to be a faithful, faithful teacher of your word, staying close to it. And I pray you would help each of us to be attentive and retentive, that we would receive what you have for us in a way that shapes us. And I pray this for the glory of Christ. In his name, amen. Follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 about the wedding in Cana of Galilee. 
On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time or my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw, out, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and, when the cheap, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. And then the Apostle John, who's writing this, ends with these words. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So you get the story. It's a wedding day story. It's a happy story in many ways. Just like uh, in our culture back then, Jewish culture, weddings were a big deal. In fact, they were in some ways a bigger deal back then than they even are today because by our standards, their weddings often were marathons. They would go for days, sometimes weeks. And if you were putting on the wedding, if that was your family wedding, it was kind of your job and your joy to feed all the guests for days or weeks. And so you didn't want things to run out prematurely, right? You wanted to kind of plan this deal out, have it work for the whole time. Now, at this wedding, there develops a bit of a mini-crisis, they run out of wine before they run out of wedding. Like the wedding's still going, but the wine is not flowing, right? Now, I can feel a bit of the angst of this. We didn't have wine at our kid's wedding, but we did have lots of food, and we were in charge of the rehearsal dinner, so we were kind of making sure that we had enough salmon, mounds of salmon, to make it enough salads, and it was kind of a, you know, a scary thing to think that possibly we could run short. Well, that's what happened at this wedding. It's like they're running short. So Mary, Jesus' mother, who's there, must have been like a family friend or a relative of whoever this wedding was because she feels some personal responsibility for the crisis. And she says to her son, Jesus, in verse 3, she says to him, you see it in verse 3? They have no more wine. Now, grammatically, that is a statement of fact. But rhetorically, it is the request for help, right? She's not just saying, like here, newsflash, they have no more wine. She's saying, Jesus, do something about this, right? So Jesus responds, verse 4, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time or my hour has not yet come. Jesus says to her, Mother, dear woman, I'm living by a different timetable. I, I'm operating in life at the Father's will, and you need to know that I, when I act, I act in accordance with what He wants me to do. My hour, my time to be fully revealed has not yet come. 
So Mary hears that, but she still has hope because she says to the servants who are standing there, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Like she's still hoping that he's going to help, right? Now, when she says in verse 5, you see it? Do whatever he tells you. That's a very appropriate thing to say to servants. That's what servants do, right? They do whatever they are told by those in authority. But I think there's something larger going on there. Mary is saying words that point to a larger truth. It's a truth that applies not just to the servants at this wedding. It applies to all of us who are servants of Christ. Mary is saying something that the Bible says is true of all of those of us who are disciples, who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus. I'd put it this way. When Mary said, do whatever he tells you, the lesson that you and I take from this is simply this. Those who follow Jesus do whatever he says. Right? That, that's kind of the deal. Those who follow Jesus do whatever he says. That was true of these servants that day. But that was also true of the followers of Christ, the disciples who were with him. Those who follow Jesus do whatever he says. Did you notice there in verse 2, it says Jesus and his disciples were there. Jesus and his disciples. Well, we find about these disciples in chapter 1. We learn about, about four or five of them who are invited, who start to follow Jesus. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 43 you find that this principle of doing whatever Jesus says is what marks a follower of Christ. Look at verse 43 of chapter 1. It says, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He was down in Judea. He's going to go north to Galilee. And it says in verse 43, finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And guess what Philip does? He follows Jesus. He does what Jesus says. In fact, as you read chapter 1, Jesus goes to several men and says, come and see, come follow me. And in every case, they do what he says. Because one of the marks of a follower of Jesus is that they do what he says. They go where he goes. They do what he wants. See, those who follow Jesus do what he says. Now, I think that's important for us. Here's why. In our day and age, when we talk about Christians... Some of us, and I, I'm one, I'll sometimes do this. I'll refer to myself as a follower of Christ. Uh, the word Christian, sometimes people think, well, that just means you're like, you know, Canadian. Or it means like you're religious. So sometimes to be a little clearer, some of us will say I'm a disciple or I'm a follower of Christ. And I, I think that's a very good description. That's, that's biblical. It comes right out of John 1. Follow me. I follow Jesus. But here's the thing that I think is important for us to remember. When we call ourselves followers of Christ, we need to remember that the mark of a follower of Christ is that we do what he says. See, we're not followers of Jesus in the social media sense of followers, right? Like on social media, if you follow somebody, that just means you kind of stay updated about them. You get little, you get little feeds on your phone that tell you little tidbits about what they're doing or what they're thinking, and you'd say, well, I'm a follower of so-and-so. That's not the biblical view of being a follower, is it? It's not that we just get updates from Jesus and we go, oh, that's what he's up to. That's kind of nice to know. <laughs> being a follower of Jesus means that when he says we're going here, you go, okay, I guess we're going there. When Jesus says this is what we're doing, then a follower of Jesus says, well, then that's what we're doing because I'm a follower of Jesus. I follow his directives. I follow his instructions. In fact, in fact, 
if I claim to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm not doing what he says, then it calls into question whether or not I'm really a follower, whether I'm really a disciple. It calls into question whether my words have any reality. Uh, let me give you a picture of that. At the, at the rehearsal dinner that we hosted a week ago, we had some dear friends from Ottawa. Josh and, and Barb would know them. Jim and Susan Maley, they came down and they oversaw the cooking of all the food for that dinner. And our family, uh, Linda's brother and sister-in-law's mom, all of them were pitching in. But Jim and Susan kind of were like at the helm. And Jim and Susan have been missionaries in Papua New Guinea. We visited them there. We, they're like family to us. So they said, we'll come down, we'll cook the meal. Well, the Maleys are known. Like this is, the, they are legendary in our church for their bread rolls. Like if you have the Maley bread rolls... It's like, you've had really good bread. So we said, would you make the, the bread rolls? So they said, for sure. So they got down there Friday morning, and they started just whipping up batches of these bread rolls. Well, imagine if I had gone into them and said, hey, can I help you guys? And they said, sure. Here's the recipe. Just follow this. And I look at it, and it has, you know, flour so much, eggs so much, yeast so much, salt so much. So I put it down, and I start making up mainly bread rolls. But then somebody comes by and looks at my little workstation, and they go, how come you're putting in soy sauce? And they see me dumping in soy sauce. And then they see that I'm kind of throwing in chili powder, putting in chili powder, or crumbling in blue cheese. And people come up and say, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm making the Maley bread rolls. So what do you mean you're making the bread? You're not, doing, you're not following their directions. And I said, no, 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 I love the Maley's. Like they're, they're, they're like family to me. I'm a follower of the Maley's. I've eaten their bread rolls, and now I'm making their bread rolls. Somebody could look at me and say, regardless of what you're saying, pal, you're not making mainly bread rolls because you're not doing the directions. You're not following what they say. Now, you get where I'm going with this, right? Sometimes those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus do spiritually something similar. We say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, And Jesus says we are to forgive one another fully from our hearts. But I want to hold a grudge. Jesus says I'm to give generously of what he gives me, but I I want to keep it to myself. Jesus says we are to be marked by sexual purity in our minds and in our bodies. And yet some of us say, well, I can dabble in the darkness. I can kind of go do some things off on the side. I'm still a follower of Jesus. Jesus says we are to be his witnesses wherever we are, in Georgetown, in Ontario, and to the ends of the earth, right? Jesus says to speak up, and we say, well, I don't want to speak up. I don't don't want to lose my friends or lose my job, and I don't want want things to be kind of socially awkward. But I'm a follower of Jesus. And somebody could look at us and honestly sometimes say, really? I thought followers of Jesus did what Jesus said. And that's true. When Mary told the servants, do whatever he says, she's she's saying things that are true for all of us who follow him. We are to do whatever he says. So let me ask you, by that definition, are you able to wear the title follower of Jesus? Am I able to wear the title follower of Jesus? See, followers of Jesus do what he says. Now, I do need to add two important truths that kind of round out the picture here. They don't come out in our passage, but they do come out in the rest of John's gospel. There's two things that you need to remember. The first of which is this. 
You follow Jesus, you follow what he says because you believe who he is. See, the following that Jesus does, that he wants, is a following of faith. When he says, do this, the reason we do what he says is because we believe who he is. That was true of Philip. In uh, chapter 1, verse 43, remember how I said Jesus found Philip and he said, follow me? Why did Philip follow Jesus? It's because he believed who he was. Verse 45, he finds Nathanael and tells him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, Philip followed Jesus because he believed that Jesus was the one they were looking for, the Messiah, the one that's spoken of in the prophets, the son of God. And it's the same thing true for you. If you follow Jesus, you're not just following a set of ethics or a set of directives. You're following a person. You're believing in him. And because you believe in him, you do what he says. So that's the first thing. We follow, those who follow Jesus' words, they do so. They follow what he says because they believe who he is. Second thing that comes out in the gospel of John is this. Those who follow what Jesus says do so in the power that he gives. They do so in the power that he gives. When they follow him, it's not just their own human battery power. They're, they're leaning into following Jesus, but they're expecting Jesus to help them. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his followers, when I leave, I'm going to send you another comforter, and he will be with you. He will be in you. He will bring to your minds the things that I've said. He will enable you to do what I've told you to do. See, Christianity is not just a bunch of directives, and it's not even something that I just kind of grit my teeth and pull up my strength and do, oh yes, I'm involved and yes, I have to follow, but I follow in faith and I follow in strength that God provides. So let me ask you just one more time, if that's the definition of a follower of Jesus, can you wear the title? Are you a follower of Jesus? Now, somebody could hear what I've just said and said, and they'd say to themselves quietly, probably here in church, but publicly, if we were outside, they might say to me, why would anyone sign up for this, by the way? Like, why would anyone sign up to be a follower of Jesus? It seems a lot harder than just going and doing what you want. Why would you kind of put yourself under Jesus and do what he says and where he wants? Why does anyone become a follower? And I'd say, well, this passage, this wedding story actually gives you an answer. Actually, it gives you two answers. Two reasons why following Jesus is the very best use of a life. And what I want to do in the time I have left is I want to show you the reasons why we follow Jesus. And this, these two reasons have just become alive to me over these last weeks. And I hope, they'll, I hope they'll give you something that you'll just fire you up as well. They come out of verse 11, which is the last part of our story. John adds in verse 11, after telling the story, he says, this is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee he thus revealed his glory. Ah, there's the first one. You see, if it's true that those who follow Jesus do what he says, the second thing that I want you to see, and it's the reason why we follow, is this. Those who follow Jesus will see his glory, right? They get to see his glory. Only those who follow him, only those who do what he says, are going to be positioned in a place where they get to see his glory. Verse 11 says, this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. So when Jesus did this miracle, it was revealing his glory. Well, you say, what does that mean? 
I, I put it this way. You know, what it, what, you know what it means to say he revealed his glory? He showcased his awesomeness, right? Like he did something that was literally awesome. He, he allowed the radiance of his divine majesty to shine through. Like at this wedding, Jesus' glory kind of, it, 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 it like, it turned bright. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, John talks about Jesus' glory. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, speaking of Jesus, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. What that's saying is Jesus, the divine Word, the one who was with God, who was God, became flesh. That's Christmas, right? That's when Jesus took on humanity. And when He took on humanity, it's almost like He veiled His glory. Picture, picture a light bulb. Imagine that we had a, a light stand here and one light bulb, and it's just very, very bright. Picture that as the glory, the divinity, the deity of Jesus. And then let's imagine I have a paper sack, and I put the paper sack over the light bulb. And you can see it kind of glowing, but you don't see the brightness in the same way. The paper sack would represent Jesus' humanity. It's not a perfect illustration, but it shows that there was some veiling of the glory. But every once in a while... It's a word like Jesus pulled off the sack a little bit. He, he kind of let people see his glory, the transfiguration. They saw his glory, right? They saw, and, and when he did this miracle, they saw his glory. He revealed his awesomeness. Now, here's my question for you. Now, think hard about the story. Who got to see his glory? Who got to see it? Well, actually, it wasn't the most important people at the wedding, Right? Like the bride, she's not even mentioned in this story. How can you have a wedding story without a bride? But she's not even mentioned in the story. The bridegroom is mentioned and the head waiter. And neither of them saw the glory of Jesus. We know that from verse 9. Verse 9 says, The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He then called the bridegroom aside and said, Hey, everybody serves the cheaper wine after everybody's had so much to drink, but you say the best till now, right? So the, the guy who's in charge of the wedding, he doesn't know what's going on. And the bridegroom, he doesn't know what's going on. I'm guessing the bride doesn't either. So who saw Jesus' glory? It was the servants and the disciples. Those are the two groups that we're told about. Verse 9, it says, he, the master waiter, did not realize where it had come from, but the servants knew. The servants knew. Those who had done what Jesus said, they knew. And then verse 11, very end, it says, his disciples put their faith in him. They evidently knew. So here's what I take from that, my friends. The way you get to see Jesus' glory is you follow him. Like you do what he says. And when you do what he says, then you're positioned to be there when he displays some of his awesomeness. Haven't you found that over the year? It's when you're serving him, when you're following him, that he gives you glimpses of his glory that are just stunning to you. I remember many years ago, Linda and I served at a church in California, and uh, we were in charge of the university age, college and career age. And uh, these guys were uh, near, we were near a campus, a university campus, college campus, and they wanted to reach out with the gospel to their friends on this campus. So they decided, let's host 
some kind of an event. And we were invited to host a big concert. And this is back in the 80s. And a, a big name in Christian music uh, was coming through our, t- our town. And they didn't have a venue. And so they said to us somehow, would you guys run this? It was a guy named Phil Keggy, who was a guitar player and singer. And so here are these students who've never put on a concert in their life. And they say, but this could help us reach our campus. So they sign up to run this huge concert. They, they raised money from the people in our church who could care less about coming to hear Phil Keggy, to be honest, but who cared about people getting the gospel. And, and people in the church gave them money so that they could buy tickets to give out for free on the college campus. But a couple weeks before this was all going to happen, we got a call from the manager of Phil Keggy who was saying, we're checking ticket sales, and right now you guys don't have enough tickets to hold a concert. But you're on the hook for X amount of dollars. And, and all suddenly this great fear, you know, struck all these students going, like, we're in over our heads. But to their credit, they just knuckled down and they prayed and they worked and they trusted and they served. And I, I still remember the night of the concert. We were in a big church held, I don't know, a thousand people. And I remember just seeing the cars start coming and the students and the adults start coming and they packed this place out. And the people that left that day would have said, ah, that was pretty great. That was glorious. But those students, man, for the rest of their life, they're saying, we saw the Lord do something that we didn't think could happen. And we had a front row seat. And the reason we had a front row seat is because we were involved in serving. We were the ones who were doing what he said. We were trying to reach out with the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, I'd say that to you at Maple Ave. You want to see more of the glory of God? Then get involved in doing what he is doing and following what he is saying. Like he's told us to serve one another. So those who are serving with the children's ministry, sometimes when you're up close with a child, you get to be there and see the glory of Jesus when a child comes to faith in Christ. And other people hear about it and are happy, but you say, no, I saw it. Or when you're discipling somebody or when you're reaching out to a colleague or a neighbor with the gospel, when you take steps of faith, when you obey, you position yourself to see the glory of Christ. So why do you follow Jesus? Don't you want moments in your life when you get to see the glory of God on display? I can just tell you the best place to be positioned to see the glory of God is to be a servant of Christ who's doing what he says. So that's the first reason. But there's a second one, and I'll close with this. Why follow Jesus? Why be his follower? Why do what he says in the power of the Spirit? Yes, yes, those who follow him will see his glory. But here's the second thing. It also comes out of Verse 11, those who follow Jesus will grow in their faith. If you follow him, your faith's going to grow. That's the way he set it up. If you just sit on the sidelines and say, somehow my faith will grow, it probably won't. But when you follow him, when you step forward, when you're doing what he says, he's made it so that your faith is going to grow. That's what happens to the disciples. Look at verse 11. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana at Galilee. He thus revealed his glory... And look at the last line. And his disciples put their faith in him. You say, wait a second. I thought the disciples already believed in him. They followed him back in chapter 1. Didn't they already have faith in him? I'd say, well, yeah, they did to some level. They had enough faith to follow him from Judea to Galilee, but they were still learning who he was. And when they saw his glory, his miraculous power, their faith grew. Right? They believed in Him. They went to a new level of belief in Him. Now, that's what God wants for you. 
He wants your faith to grow in Jesus. He wants it to get deeper and stronger. In fact, that's why John wrote this book. He wrote this book to increase your faith in Jesus. I know that because he tells you at the very end of the book. Eugene Merrill says about John, he says, John is an author who hangs the key at the back door. Like if you want the key to the book, you got to go to the back of the book because that's where he hangs the key. It's in John chapter 20, verse 31. I think we'll have it on the screen. Listen to this, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's saying, I wrote down all these glories that Jesus did, and here's why I did it. I could have written about many other signs, but I wrote the ones I did down so that you may believe. Like when you see his glory, your faith will get stronger. And that's why when you work your way through the Gospel of John, there, there are a number of signs, miraculous signs that Jesus does. Chapter 4, he heals the nobleman's son. Chapter 5, he heals the man who was crippled at the pool there. Remember that story? Chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. Then you get to chapter 9, and there's a blind man. And he heals the blind man. You get to chapter 11 and Lazarus. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And then you get to chapter 19 and 20. And Jesus does the greatest sign of all. His own death on the cross, which we will celebrate in a moment. And his resurrection from the dead. And at the end of that, John goes, I wrote all these things down so that you would see his glory and you'd believe. See, those who follow him are in the position to see his glory and strengthen their faith. You want your faith strengthened? Then you become a follower of Jesus. And as you follow him, he grows your faith, right? You see more of who he is. You learn more of it, and your faith gets stronger. It gets deeper. And you know what happens when you believe in him? You receive life. That's what, that's what the verse says, right? Look at the end of verse 31 that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You follow him and you're, you're, you're walking towards life. In fact, it's life now, life to its fullest now, and life eternal then. In fact, the most famous verse in John, you know it, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. See, when you follow him, when you believe in him, when you say, Jesus, I'm putting all my faith in you. You died for me. You rose from there. I'm following you. He gives you this gift of life. And you'll see his glory now as your faith gets strengthened. But here's the cool thing. You won't stop seeing his glory when you die. In fact, that will actually usher you into the place where you will see his glory in full. It's interesting. When Jesus prays in the garden right before he's going to the cross, John chapter 17 Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, this is my prayer, that that my disciples might get to be with me to see my glory. Like Jesus wants you to see his glory in a way you've never seen it. You see it in glimpses on earth, but one day in eternity, you will see his glory in the full sense. In fact, in fact, I started thinking about this fact that Jesus did his first sign at a wedding. At a wedding. And his first sign was just to to make the wedding go better. And I thought, well, you know, in light of the other signs Jesus did, this one seems a bit trivial, seems lightweight. Here he's just helping a wedding reception go a little better. 
The other signs, he's healing somebody. So why did he do his first sign at a wedding? And the more I thought about it, I thought something's going on deeper here than just this wedding. In fact, in this wedding, we're not ever, we'd never meet the bride. Jesus is center stage at this wedding. What's going on? What's going on with this sign at a wedding? And then I started to realize, do you know the Bible uses the picture of a wedding throughout to speak of God's love for his people, right? And then the Bible ends. In fact, John, the author of this book, wrote another book, the book of the Revelation. And in the book of the Revelation, he talks about a wedding. Like there's going to be a wedding day in the future that those who belong to Jesus will get to be at. Listen to this from Revelation 19. Verses 7, 8, and 9 says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know who gets invited to the wedding supper? Those who believe in him. By believing, you would have life in his name, life now and life then. So why should you follow Jesus with your life? It's because right now you get to see glimpses of his glory in ways that others will miss. But more than that, you will also have your faith strengthened now on earth, and you get a ticket to the greatest wedding celebration there will ever be. Like you're going to get to be there. I told you I came away from last weekend still kind of in the glow of the glory of the wedding day. That's just a little picture of the glow of the glory of the wedding day that's coming. And guess who gets to go to that? Not always the high and mighty. Not always the people who have the VIP tickets to the wedding. It's the servants. It's the disciples. It's the followers. See, if I had to sum up this whole story, I'd put it this way. Followers of Jesus are best positioned to see his glory and strengthen their faith. Followers of Jesus are in the best, they get the best seat in the house to see his glory and strengthen their faith. So here's my prayer for those of you at Maple Ave. You would be followers of Jesus. You would follow him in faith. You would trust in him with your life and you would have a chance to see his glory now. Strengthen your faith now and get ready for the big wedding day that's coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the joy of the wedding celebration, and I thank you that it's a picture to us of your great love for your bride, the church. I thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you gave your son who laid himself down, who sacrificed for his bride, I thank you that those of us who've come to trust in Jesus with simple faith, who believed in his death for us, for our sins, and believed in his resurrection from the grave, we've been given access to you, entrance into the kingdom, part of your family, part of your bride. I thank you for the wedding day that's coming. And until that day, Lord, I'm praying personally that I would be a faithful follower, that in the grace and glory you provide, I'd follow Jesus. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. I pray if there's anyone here today who's never become a follower of Jesus, that today would be the day they say yes, that they put their faith in Christ and receive a place now at the, in the life of Christ and then at the wedding table. 
I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.